Having listened to that lovely anthem based on part of Psalm 31, let us turn to the New Testament scriptures in the book of Acts, chapter 16, reading from verse 16 onwards. The book of Acts, chapter 16, from verse 16, as we come to the third and the last of the remarkable conversions recounted in the Greek city of Philippi, the city to which, you remember, the later letter of Paul to the Philippians was written. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Men, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and the whole family was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God. And we'll finish there. May God indeed bless to our understanding once more this reading of his holy word. Now, on these Sunday mornings, as many of you are aware, we have been tracing the growth of the early church in the book of Acts. 
And we have been seeing that these great chapters and portions of God's word not only give to us the account of the church's growth in great numbers and expansively, but the scriptures also wonderfully and tellingly give us the accounts of individual conversions to the Lord Jesus Christ also. It is, as someone has said, like the spokes of a wheel radiating out in many different directions, yet all of them having a central hub there to them. And that central hub is the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of his salvation. Now, already in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, we have discovered that there are two remarkable accounts of individual conversions. A woman, and then another younger woman, a slave girl, coming to Christ out of very different circumstances and in very different ways indeed. And we have come this morning to the third and in some ways the most spectacular conversion to Christ recorded in this chapter and probably in the whole book of Acts with the single exception of the conversion of the Apostle Paul himself in Acts chapter 9. Now you remember with me that Paul and Silas and his friend the Christian doctor Luke and young Timothy had already been evangelizing in the provinces of Asia and Bithynia. And they were directed so remarkably by a vision in the night to cross over the Aegean Sea and land for the first time on the continent of Europe, coming to the shores of Greece, from which point at Neapolis, the Holy Spirit evidently directed their feet to the great city of Philippi in northern Greece, a Roman colony. And you remember how they went down by the river Gangites outside of that lovely city of Philippi with all its roads and marble buildings and its streets thronged with legionaries, both retired and active in the Roman army, how they went outside of it because there was no synagogue in Philippi. And down by the river Gangites, as Paul expounded the scriptures of God's word from the Old Testament, the heart of Lydia, that businesswoman, opened like a flower before the sun to faith in the Lord Jesus. And then we saw, you remember, the conversion of the slave girl in very dramatic circumstances, this woman who had the spirit of divination, who was owned by a syndicate for her exploitation, and yet who came to know the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus, the source of her regeneration. Now, beloved, what we are doing on these Sunday mornings is not a study in ancient history. This is characteristic of what the Lord is still doing in his church today. Thank God that in whatever circumstances a man or a woman is, the Lord Jesus is able to draw that person, if the circumstances be never so difficult, to himself in saving faith. 
the great scriptural doctrine of the irresistible grace of God. And we have come, in some ways, as I say to you this morning, to the most dramatic conversion of all three recounted in this chapter. A story that simply shows the power of the gospel of the grace of God in men's salvation. Now, first of all, I want you to notice with me out of three things that there is the advance of the gospel in the city of Philippi. And I want you to notice as we look at this two things in particular. The first is that as the gospel advances in this pagan city of Philippi, the course of the gospel and the course of pioneer missions, beloved, like the course of true love, is seldom smooth. You see, you and I have such, I think, uh, a rose-tinted view of the Christian life at times that we are surprised when there are difficulties. We are surprised when churches may not grow as we expect them to grow, where there aren't the encouragements in abundance that we might expect to find when the gospel is being preached and a congregation is living in a biblical way. And you know, we need this lesson ourselves here in Westminster, that as the gospel advances, the course of the gospel is seldom smooth. Now you remember what we read at the beginning of our reading here in this service this morning. Paul and his companions are in the midst of paganism, a city so pagan, evidently, that there wasn't even enough Jewish families, ten of them, to form a synagogue. And they had to go outside of the city to find a place of prayer where those godly Jews and proselytes would try to worship the true and living God to the best of their abilities down by the Gangites River. And in the midst of this city, with all its bustle, full of Roman soldiers retired and active, the gospel by God's providence and by divine guidance, remember, had come. And Paul is about to dig a deep and lasting foundation in that pagan city. But remember, it's already had a very unusual start. Not the kind of thing we would expect at all with trumpets fanfaring and multitudes being drawn into the church after guidance directly from the Holy Spirit, such as Paul received. You would expect that. But it began with one woman, and her not even a native of the city. And it continued with the conversion of a demon-possessed girl. And it was now about to have a most unusual sequel. And you remember that Lydia's conversion was a private affair down there in that little group by the river that met on the Jewish Sabbath day. But the slave girl's conversion was quite different. It was a 
public affair, and it had public and immediate consequences. Because, as I said to you two Sundays ago, when she stopped telling fortunes, her owners stopped making them. And immediately, their loss of gain is made the cause for an attack on God's servants. Whenever the source of pagan gain, beloved, dries up because of the course of the victorious gospel, there is bound to be trouble. And there is an immediate reaction and opposition. And you see, the point is this that I believe wherever the gospel is doing its work, there will be satanic opposition. You see, Satan never bothers, never disturbs churches or professed Christian works where his kingdom is not being threatened. He leaves those alone. But you see, he's determined that the preacher's mouth should be stopped that there should be no more prayer meetings down by the river Gangites. Doesn't that tell us something of where the church's priorities should be? What did these men do when they went into Philippi? They prayed and they preached. And if there are ever two activities that Satan hates and would willingly bring to cessation, it is those two great activities. the praying of God's people and the preaching of God's word. And he is determined that the Bible will be no more opened and there will be no more readings of the scriptures. And you see what happens. The syndicate for exploitation stir up the people into a mob hysteria and everyone we would imagine begins to shout and to yell at the apostles and propel them bodily into the very center square of Philippi, the Roman agora, the marketplace, where sat the judges, the praetors, with their servants, the lictors, that administered the punishment that was due. And suddenly this comparatively calm scene of apostolic labors becomes one of howling vexation because of the truth that the path of the true gospel, beloved, is seldom smooth. Now that's the first thing. But the second thing about the advance of the gospel is this. But it does remind us, does it not, that it is with much tribulation that we are to enter the kingdom of God just as the apostles did in their day. Again, you remember the scene from the earlier verses that we read together. Here are the, uh, the apostles propelled and hustled against their will into the marketplace. And there are the magistrates sitting on the bema, the judgment seat, perhaps completing the day's work of lawsuits and prosecutions against a startling array of criminals that were so common in the ancient Roman world. And suddenly they lift up their eyes and they see a tumult and they see two men being hustled toward them in great haste and the crowd yelling, and dragging these men along. 
and they listen to the accusation that these men are a threat to public order and are to be dealt with at once. Do you notice what we read there in those verses? They are Jews in the first place, say their accusers. Now that was bad, because to be a Jew was to be despised by the Romans. And at that time, the emperor Claudius had banished the Jews out of the imperial city of Rome because he recognized that they were the source of a great deal of trouble in the city. And they go on to say these men are causing a disturbance. And the magistrates could see this with their own eyes. But what was worse still... They are teaching us as Romans customs that are not lawful for us to obey. And in this we see the accuracy of the historian of the book of Acts, the writer Luke, in that he well knew that many religions were tolerated in the Roman Empire of the first century, provided they were authorized religions. The Romans didn't matter which idol you bowed down and worshipped, which shrine you brought your pinch of incense and offered it before the idol, provided it was a recognized religion by the Roman state. But to have a religio illicita, an illicit or unauthorized religion was a very serious charge indeed for which there were very severe penalties. And these men, say the accusers, have come into our peaceable city teaching us customs which as Romans it is not lawful for us to observe. And that was the most serious charge of all. Now, isn't it interesting, beloved, that Satan, when he opposes the gospel, seldom gives the real reason for his displeasure. But he uses subterfuge. I've seen it so often in my ministry. The real reason, of course, is that Satan is determined to prevent the preaching of God's word and the praying of God's people. But the reasons that he brings before the eyes and into the minds of men are quite different from that. They are Jews. They are causing a disturbance. They are teaching unlawful customs. And they are disturbers of the peace. And so you see they are sentenced quite illegally with no inquiry evidently, no defense, and a formal sentence does not even seem to have been passed on their alleged crimes. Now look you with me. There was no trouble in Philippi except the uproar that these men themselves had stirred up. Because you can hardly call the quiet praying down by the riverside a disturbance. Nor can you call the exorcising of the demon out of the poor demented slave girl a public disturbance. And in no sense were these men disturbers of the peace. And isn't it interesting 
But really, you see, the gospel is never the cause of disturbance. It's always Satan's reaction to it. But because of that, with much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, my friends, do you realize what I'm saying to you as I summarize this point? These men could have looked at these circumstances, Paul and Silas and Luke and young Timothy, and said, this is the finale. It's all over. It's the end of the gospel in Philippi. Yet, as we're going to see in a moment, it wasn't the end, but in a sense only the beginning, because in amazing ways, in God's providence, he can make the church grow in the most unlikely of human circumstances when everything is against his church. And out of the furnace of affliction, I remind you, came one of the most beautiful churches of the New Testament. A corner, if you like, of the field of Paul's labors on which it seems the sun was always shining. That lovely church in Philippi began when the gospel advanced in the midst of tribulation. Now the second thing that I want to direct your attention to is this. But there is not only the advance of the gospel, beloved, but there is the anointing of the apostles in verses 25 through 26. Look at those verses in your Bibles in front of you. And there are three things that I want to say quite quickly about the anointing of the apostles, verses 25 through 26. They contain surely three most vital and relevant truths that make us literally sit up in our seats and take notice. And the first is this, that though Paul and Silas, Mark, you were deprived of their liberty, the word of God was not bound, nor was his power for one moment shackled. Now, can you picture the scene? They might have looked at each other with bleeding backs and bruised swellings upon their bodies and said to each other, the work is over now, Silas. We've done our best, Paul. A less promising field for the gospel you'll never find. They could so easily have said, to each other. And this would have been an understandable human reaction to their plight because it would have seen from the human vantage point that every circumstance was now against them. They were beaten and degraded, stripped naked, a shocking indignity, and thrust into the most evil and foul inner prison with the charge that these dangerous men must be set fast in the stocks. And it would appear to be the very last word, wouldn't it, of human misery and distress, with their backs bleeding, probably lying flat on the cold, damp, putrid earth, with their legs stretched out in the stocks to the point where their thighs may well have almost been dislocated and shivering with cold 
as the body's reaction in shock to what they had suffered, lying side by side, and their muscles stiffening hour by hour, and unable to turn or move to relieve the pain. They were bound, but the word of God, beloved, was not bound for a moment. Now that's what we need to grasp. And the second truth is this, that their joy in the Lord remained. Now isn't it amazing that in the record in verses 25 and 26, we see these men in the the condition I've described to you, singing praises to God and praying. It's amazing to the point of being almost unbelievable were it not written in the sacred word. And though their backs were sore from the lictor's rods, they had joy in the Lord in their inmost hearts. And evidently at midnight they had recovered sufficiently, but their praises were echoing throughout all the prison cells. They were praising God, evidently, in those wonderful words of the Hebrew Psalms. Psalm 23 and Psalm 34 about the man in deep distress being delivered by the hand of God. Perhaps Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. In circumstances like this, What a triumph of character. What a triumph of the grace of God in the lives of these men. But above all, what a testimony to the power of Christ among his people in the most difficult and painful and adverse of circumstances. It reminds me of that later instance in church history when Samuel Rutherford the Great champion of the covenant in Scotland, was banished from his beloved church in Anworth by the Solway and sent, it seemed, to the very ends of the earth, to Aberdeen. And there his liberty was restricted and his mouth was closed from preaching the gospel. But it wasn't really closed, because from that imprisonment came many of the letters of Samuel Rutherford but are still such a stimulus and strength to Christians living today. And he says in one of them that Christ came into my cell tonight and every stone in the wall flashed forth his glory. They were praying, they were praising because their joy in the Lord remained. But the third thing, Mark, you, is this that their private devotions became the means of public grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at it. Surely they had one of the strangest audiences in the whole of the New Testament to listen to the gospel of God's grace. A congregation of jailbirds the robbers and the bandits, perhaps, from the great Ignatian highway that ran from Philippi and the Adriatic Sea right across to the Aegean. And those robbers may well have said, they sing now 
But wait until the morning. They will have learned our language of curses and blasphemies. And perhaps the murderer from Thessalonica was there. And he would have said, would that this right arm of mine were free to stop this singing. But you see, because the power of God was with his servants and the grace of God rested upon them, evidently, in time, the very presence and power of the Lord hushed the abuse of the prisoners. And a sense of wonder must have fallen over the dark and dismal dungeons of that place. And the private devotions of these men of God became a public means of grace to the most needy of sinners. Because the songs of Paul and Silas were reaching their hearts. Now do you know what I'm saying to you in the anointing of these men? Beloved, I'm saying to you, don't you ever dare to think that your case is too hard for the Lord. Were these men anointed of God so that the word of God was not bound even though their limbs were bound? so that their joy remained alive in Christ, so that their private devotions became a means of public grace? How can you sit here this morning, whatever condition of heart or life you're in, and dare to think that your case is ever too hard for the Lord? Do you not remember that he is able to give you songs in the night, just as he did to these men? Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or the 40th Psalm that we read together this morning. The man down in the deep and miry pit who called upon the name of the Lord and the Lord lifted him out and put a new song into his mouth. Even praise unto our God. Or the 130th Psalm, out of the depths have I called unto thee, O Lord. And the Lord heard him, and the Lord delivered him. My dear friend, I say to you that you can never tell where your life and your voice and your witness is being heard, and in the midst of the darkest and most depressing and discouraging of circumstances, who knows that by God's grace your life is a beam of light to someone who is in need of salvation. How can you tell how far your influence will go if you are being obedient to God, sometimes into the most unlikely of places and to reach the most unlikely of persons. Beloved, that's what this passage is surely teaching us. God knows where it is best for us to be and how it is best for us to be. And if these men had ever thought back to that vision given by the Holy Ghost 
in the night directing Paul sovereignly to minister in Philippi, they might well have said, we've made the most appalling mistake and we should never have been here. But God knows where it is best for us to be. The anointing of the apostles. Well, as I draw to a close, the third thing is the awakening of the jailer. Now look with me at verses 26, will you, and following. In these most unlikely of circumstances, God was about to win for himself through the witness of these men a hardened heart as ever you might meet in this jailer. Now, we don't know very much about him, but what we do know is that normally the Romans would employ a retired army soldier to guard their prisons, a man hard-bitten, having seen much warfare and death and suffering, and a man whose nature was inured to cruelty. It never moved his heart, And even the most severe sentence passed upon a deserving criminal would be exercised in full by such men. And upon the life of such a man as this, beloved, we are about to witness an amazing miracle of the grace of God. In fact, he witnessed three miracles. Look at the passage. Singing at midnight... Think of it. Think of the effect upon this man. As he said to himself, how can these two men, Paul and Silas, who have suffered so much injustice and the cruelest of beatings, ever sing at midnight? It was a miracle. And the second one was to follow in quick succession as we read. The whole foundations of the prison began to shake and to move and the walls to begin to totter. And yet the amazing thing is this, that though the doors were burst open and the latches that held the prisoners' chains to the walls were unloosed, not one of them evidently was harmed. Not a hair on their heads perished. And this earthquake that was tearing apart the ground and shaking the very solid structure of the prison walls was so ordered by the almighty providence of God that it did just what he wanted it to do and nothing else. And the third miracle is this, that none of the prisoners, you notice, had escaped in the midst of all the confusion and the darkness and the dust milling around in that foul and filthy place and all the lights being extinguished as we read, he feared the worst, that every one of those jailbirds had fled through the open doors to liberty and he well knew the severity of the Roman law upon such a custodian who allowed a single prisoner to escape, de custodia reorum, which required the life of the custodian in the place of the life of the escaped prisoner. And he was about, you notice, to commit suicide when Paul called out, Do thyself no harm! And you see, it leads, doesn't it, to the fourth amazing miracle 
in the light of which all the others just pale into insignificance. When that supernatural light of God's grace began to shine into this man's heart, he called for a light. But, beloved, in talking to these men, Paul and Silas, another and supernatural light began to shine into this man's mind and heart and conscience because he was a man who now began to look into eternity. And he was afraid no longer of those Roman masters who might have held his life to account, but he was afraid of the great master and the wrath of God that he was suddenly made aware of in these frightening and perturbing circumstances that he was a sinner and without any hope in the presence of the majesty on high. Look at him. Presumably he had heard something of the ministry of these men. Perhaps he had heard the testimony of the slave girl. They are servants of the living God and bring you the message of salvation. And he had seen their composure and their gentleness. And he had heard them praising God. And he had seen the prison shaken in a supernatural way so that the whole atmosphere evidently was diffused with a sense of the presence and the power of God. And within him the great deeps were broken up and his sins evidently arose before him from every hiding place and stood accusatorily in his presence. And he cried out, What must I do to be saved? And beloved, this morning as we finish, is that not in a single sentence the cry of the awakened soul? What must I do to be saved? And I want to tell you, that if God plans your salvation, there is nothing in this universe that can prevent him drawing you to Christ. In Lydia's case, it was so gentle like the opening of a flower to the sun, but it took an earthquake in this man's case to awaken his conscience and lead him to Christ. And in that answer so beautifully given by the apostles, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, is the very kernel of that message that men so urgently still need to hear. It's not a question of obedience. It's not a question, my dear friend, of the promises that I've made to amend my ways. It's not a question of my attempts to please the sovereign God. The righteous foundation on which my salvation must rest is Christ's life and Christ's obedience and Christ's death and Christ's resurrection so perfect that it needs no addition, my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
And beloved, as I close, clearly this man did. The fruits are there. He took them out of the prison. He washed their wounds, unthinkable for him to do. He fed them, and he and his whole household were baptized that very night. And in these unlikely circumstances. My dear friends, is it not wonderful to think of that church in Philippi, that corner of Paul's vineyard on which the sun continually shone, as Lydia was there, as the converted slave girl was there who had come to know a power far greater than she had ever experienced before. And here, thirdly, was this middle-class man, a hard-bitten Roman soldier as we would suppose him to be, and all sitting in the congregation at Philippi, and all coming to partake of the table of the same Lord, and all in these most unlikely of circumstances. Beloved, we must never, never, never stereotype the saving ways of God. All so different, yet like the spokes of a wheel radiating back to the center and the source. One common center, one common source, one common support, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask, by which of these three roads, roads have you come in your conversion to Christ? Have you come to him? Because what we are studying is not ancient history, but living experience in the church of God today. May the Lord's grace indeed triumph in your life also. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we have read and heard of these things, there is much on which to meditate and much on which to think in the coming days of this week. Bless this counsel to us all. And if any are here who know not the Lord, grant that by his saving power, they, like these we have read of, may come to saving faith in Christ, resting upon him alone for their salvation. For Jesus' sake, amen.